Welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Hi, welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Uh, Rubina, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Phyllis. Thank you. I missed you last week. Um, so I'm so glad you're back with us today, and I'm sure the listeners will be thrilled to hear your uh, your expertise and your wisdom in, our, in this conversation, which is about, um, we have a wonderful guest um, who is the youngest senator in the state of Connecticut, and he co-sponsored a bill on age discrimination. And uh, you and I, um, both being of an older age, I guess we can say, uh, we're really aware of these issues, aren't we? Uh, definitely. And we're grandmas today. Uh, we're, yes, we're, yes <laughs> and we're both grandmothers. That's true. And uh, yes. most people probably don't realize that age discrimination starts at a much younger age than... Um, then they probably originally thought, and we'll talk about that in the conversation, but I want to go ahead and introduce uh, our guest. So State Senator Will Haskell was elected uh, to the Senate in Connecticut in November 2018, and um, he's the youngest member of the General Assembly in Connecticut. Uh, he's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate from York, Georgetown University, and after graduating from Yorktown, he returned to his hometown in Connecticut and decided to run for public office. Um, he is a um, quite quite an extraordinary person. He developed a passion for improving our criminal justice system after working with the Connecticut's Office of the Public Defender where he helped connect low-income defendants with social workers and attorneys. And um, a lot of, um, of, a large portion, I, I would say, of uh, Senator Haskell's constituency are older. And so I think it's quite extraordinary that he was able to win this election. So um, with that, I'd like to introduce Senator Haskell. And um, we're so thrilled to have you here today, Senator. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to join the conversation. Yeah, this is really great. So um, I'm sure the listeners would, would like to hear a little bit about yourself and, um, you know, what inspired you to run for office and, um, you know, what led you in this direction after, after you know, graduating from college? Sure. So I know it's it's certainly not a typical path uh, for folks to run for office right after college graduation, but I have to tell you that the morning after Donald Trump's election to the presidency, I had a, a real sort of um, light bulb moment. I realized it was a, a really strange time in our country's history, but also a unique time in my life where I thought I wanted to be involved in the fight against what was happening in Washington. And I really do believe that that fight has to start at the state and local level. So like a lot of young people across the country, from Parkland, Florida, to, to, to Michigan, to California, I rolled up my sleeves and I took a look at who my local and state representatives were. And I agreed with most of them, but I found that I, I really disagreed with uh, the state senator, who had actually been in office for longer than I had been alive. And although I was planning on going to law school, uh, I, I decided to, to put that on hold and to, to come back to my hometown and start knocking doors. And, uh, you know, if, if there was a moment where I thought this is this is crazy, I should probably just go to law school. The, the seat hadn't been held by a Democrat since somebody in the 1970s. I, I, you know, it was President Obama's farewell address that really pushed me over the edge. She said, if you're disappointed in your elected officials, then grab a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office yourself. And I decided to do just that. You know, I, I had the chills when you said that because I remember when he said that. And um, I believe that Obama was, uh, president, former President Obama, was um, the youngest, wasn't he the youngest person to run for president? Or the youngest, uh, the, the newest senator to run for president? Was John F. Kennedy the youngest president? 
You know, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I can tell you that I was I was really nervous about being a young candidate at first. I knocked on around 4,000 doors, and at every single door, the very first question I got was, how old are you? Um, and, it, you know, I think that I was initially very sheepish in, in how I answered it. But what I came to realize is that actually my constituents were excited about passing the torch and seeing young people who typically have pretty abysmal voting rates actually stepping off of the sidelines and into the ballot box, into the committee room, into the Capitol building. So I think that they're, um, what I came to realize is that being a young person was not a uh, liability. In fact, it, it was an asset in my campaign. Uh, that's really quite yeah, incredible. I and I think that um, would, so that's, what I'm thinking about is maybe uh, from that initial experience, maybe you have an inkling um, from what your feeling was about how older people might feel about people feeling about them, how you felt being this young person running for office. Do, do you see any similarities there? You know, I'm really eager to talk about this bill that we have in Connecticut, but let me say that, of course, it's it's probably somewhat odd that the youngest state senator has has uh, really um, become passionate about fighting age discrimination, which faces so many of my constituents. But this is a problem in Connecticut. Uh, around 25% of our workforce in my home state are at least 55 years or older. And the AARP actually recently found that 60% of older workers saw or experienced age discrimination in their own workplace. And just over 75% of them see it as a hurdle to finding a new job. I can't imagine how frustrating that must be to be a, a experienced worker who brings uh, decades of wisdom and knowledge to a job, but to be turned away simply because of the date that you happen to be born or, or graduate high school. So uh, I, I can't I can't exactly put myself in their shoes. I know that what they're going through is wrong, but I also know that I've got some small experience with folks who I seem to understand age as a proxy for um, abilities, for perspective, for for mm -hmm. knowledge, for what you bring to the table. And uh, as as the youngest person up there, I know that uh, that's really a mistake. Uh, we need a diversity of opinions, mm -hmm. whether we're in talking about a corporate C-suite or whether we're talking about uh, the Senate circle. We need folks from all ages who bring different perspectives. And we also need to recognize that you can't simply judge somebody based off of their age, whether they're young or whether they're old, regardless of what year they happen to graduate high school. We want to make sure that the most qualified and the, 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 uh, the most necessary voices are playing a role in how we shape public policy. So I, I, I can relate to them just a little bit in, in knowing that age really shouldn't be a proxy for how you judge someone. Uh, I, I, I said something uh, when you said about 50s and 60s because the state of Connecticut is getting older, uh, as is the, the nation, as is the world, actually. But the 1967 Age Discrimination um, Employment Act actually uh, forbid employment discrimination against anyone at least 40 years of age in the United States. So when I said that before, you know, I introduced you, I brought that up. Most people probably think it's about people in their 50s and 60s, but it really starts a lot younger, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And, of course, we've got strong age discrimination statutes that prevent employers from discriminating against applicants simply because of their age. But what our bill seeks to look at is, unfortunately, there are loopholes to uh, to those anti-discrimination mm -hmm. uh, statutes. One of them is that employers are actually allowed to ask for either your birthday or the date that you graduated from high school on the initial application. Now, we hear from older workers who are, or I should say, older job applicants, that they're often turned away the moment a potential employer sees that date. So the, the narrow fix that our new bill seeks to uh, the, seeks to uh, put forward is that on the very initial application, you cannot ask for somebody's date of graduation or date of birth because we know that this is being used as a proxy, as a method for de facto age discrimination. When we want to tighten up those those laws to make them that much more effective. You know, uh, if I could just say briefly, I had a, a very uh, a, an experience with this several years ago. I uh, was uh, called to work in a skilled nursing facility, not not far from where I live, but it was in New York State, though. And um, I sent them my resume, you know, and all of that, and they set up an appointment. And uh, when I went, we had a fine conversation, and I started working there shortly thereafter. But after I started working there, the gal who interviewed me, the director of rehabilitation, told me that when they received my resume and saw the year I graduated from school, they were very reluctant. 
Is that so right? That, that's so I, I can relate to that somewhat. You know, so it's that important is, for people would, would to be able to get in the door, right, and, and to advocate for themselves. I think there's a real short-sightedness on the part of employers. I mean, I really mean it uh, when I say that over the last year, I've learned every generation has something really valuable to contribute. Every day I learn from my colleagues who are much older. Maybe they've put children or grandchildren through college, and uh, they have just a wealth of knowledge and experience. I like to think that I also bring something to the table as somebody who was recently on a college campus. I think that it's in the the harmony of that conversation and the sharing of those experiences, as divergent and different as they are, uh, that we come together, and, and that's where some of the best ideas, the best dialogues emerge. So, you know, I think that it's it's really amazing to me that employers uh, are turning away just based off of the date on a piece of paper, somebody who might be, be really, really valuable in their workspace. Yeah, I think that very, people very have this perception. True. Oh, what were you going to say, Rubina? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I would like to ask one question, Trillis, and uh, yeah, go ahead. Tesco, welcome. Welcome, and uh, I am truly impressed with your initiative and your insight, and uh, just, I can't even put it into words since Phyllis introduced me to you. Now, Phyllis, are you in in the same district that the senator represents in Connecticut? No, I'm um, in the southern part of the state. Okay. Well, uh, Senator Haskell, I'm in California, in Southern California, and I do really, really admire what you're doing for seniors. And one of the things that we are trying to do in Olive Community Services, we are a senior support services organization, is to harness the wisdom that resides in in our elder population, not only the ones in the employment arena that you're talking about, but also the ones that are, you know, willingly retired. And uh, some of the initiatives there might be those of entrepreneurship. And when you have time sometime, I'd I'd like to talk with you because I am an entrepreneur at heart. I am an employer, so I know exactly what you're talking about. So what are your uh, some of your long-term initiatives on how you can really bring forward the, the, the lessons learned and help harness them from, from the elders? Thank you so much for that question. You know, I really do believe that Connecticut's problems are intergenerational, but our solutions are also intergenerational. And, and many of these problems exactly. are not unique, although they're they're especially true in my home state of Connecticut. We have a student loan crisis across the country, but Connecticut has the highest student loan debt per capita in the entire nation. We also know that seniors find it increasingly difficult to uh, to afford their lifestyle on a fixed income. And that's especially true in Connecticut, where we're one of only 13 states that taxes Social Security checks. I mean, that is income that has already been taxed. It's patently unfair, and it makes it harder for uh, our, our, our grandparents to stick around in Connecticut and build intergenerational Connecticut families. So there's a lot we need to tackle with regard to affordability for every generation to stick around in Connecticut. And what I've learned is that the best way to move forward is not by pitting one issue, student loan debt, against another issue, which is retirement Mm -hmm. security. Instead, we have to recognize that everybody deserves a seat at the table. And I spend about half of my time in Hartford, but the other half, I spend traveling around the seven towns in my district. I I regularly visit senior centers. I hold town halls. um, I hold coffee table uh, coffee conversations every week and brown bag lunches. I can tell you that at every single one of these meetings, I... It, you know, when they happen during the day, it's largely retired people who are able to attend. They always, I always walk away with some new idea about how to make Connecticut just a little bit better. One issue that I, I'd love to share is that, you know, running for office, I didn't know very much about uh, this this issue of dignity and death. As someone who was 23 years old, mm-hmm. I hadn't thought very much about mm-hmm. the importance of folks defining their mm-hmm. own last chapter, being the author of, of their own uh, final days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I traveled around my district, as I knocked on doors, and now as I go to senior centers, I can tell you that whether it's Democrats or Republicans, whether the folks are 90 years old or 50 years old, it is one of the most common things that my constituents bring up. They they tell me that they want a safety valve, an escape hatch. They want to have the peace of mind that in the event of a terminal diagnosis, they're able to pass peacefully uh, in a manner of their choosing. And mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, 
you know, while 11 states have moved in that direction, Connecticut hasn't. It's become one of my top mm. priorities to pass it in this upcoming session because uh, I've heard from these families. I've heard from the spouses of those who have passed away about their very tragic and uncomfortable final days. And all I can say is that I'm so grateful for those who shared their stories. I'm going to keep listening because that's our ultimate job as representatives in government it's to listen to and learn from our constituents. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, as somebody who works in the long-term care space and has for so many years, those are difficult conversations to have, but people more and more are wanting to have those conversations. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, there was a documentary, an award-winning documentary, just on that issue. But uh, we're going to uh, getting ready to head to break, and when we return, we'll uh, continue this fantastic conversation about age discrimination. Uh, even though, like you said, you're from the state of Connecticut, this is an issue that faces, uh, you know, all of the population all over this country, and it affects young people as well as old people. So we'll be back in a few minutes on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Phyllis Amen, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. Rabina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of Olive Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rabina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now, back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back. I'm here with my co-host, Rubina Chaudhry, and Senator Will Haskell from Connecticut. We're having this wonderful conversation about age discrimination. And, Will, you said something. Or may I call you Will, by the way? I'm sorry, rather than Senator oh my Haskell. Gosh, of course. May I? Of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, you know, 20% of workers age 55 or older are still part of the working population. And you had brought this up about um knowledge and experience and wisdom. And so, you know, that's such a large percentage of the population that could add their wisdom and experience to the workforce that are kind of being forced out because, you know, people think they have low energy or they're not as passionate or involved. And so um, since you talked about that, how does that, and you know, factor in with this bill? And, and um, can you talk about that a little bit more? 
Sure. So I'm so glad you brought up the fact that the the national trend, and it's it's true in in Connecticut and in my little tiny portion of Connecticut as well, is that Americans are simply working until later in life. Almost a third of U.S. households now are headed by someone who's over the age of 55. And the scary thing is that those folks have no retirement savings or pensions. Uh, so a third of folks with no retirement savings or pension means that we're going to see America's workforce continue to grow older. And I think um, while we need to do a better job of making sure that uh, if families have the resources and tools they need to prepare for retirement, we also need to welcome uh, older Americans to the workforce with open arms. That means not just allowing them to stay in the jobs where they currently are, but also allowing them the flexibility to leave their jobs and apply for new ones. And the fundamental belief, uh, the fundamental, the, the driving force, I should say, behind this bill is that nobody should be turned away from a job simply because of the year in which they happen to be born. And I want to give uh, an enormous amount of credit to one of my good friends, uh, Senator Garrick Slap, who's really the leading sponsor behind this bill, as well as the Connecticut AIRP. They've drafted legislation that really, I think, uh, narrowly addresses the loopholes through which many of my constituents are currently facing age discrimination. So what, what this law does is that it ensures the best applicant on paper progresses to an interview without running into bias about his or her age. Of course, while applicants may still face age discrimination once they reach the interview, they'll at least be able to advocate for themselves in person and, and show attributes in that interview that an employer might not be able to discern from a resume. Yeah, so a lot of companies, aren't a lot of companies kind of get trying to get around this by lowering the age for, for retirement um, and disability pension benefits as, you know, kind of a like as a loophole. Right. We see drastic cuts both in the public and private sector when it comes to to pensions and other retirement income. So there's a lot of things that we need to do, right? We need to make sure that housing is is robust and available at every income bracket. I just the other day went to the ribbon cutting for the very first senior uh, housing facility in my hometown of Westport. And now it was amazing to all of us there that we didn't have already have a facility like this, but we know it's going to play a crucial role because I have two grandparents who live just down the road, but it's very likely that they're not going to be able to stay in their home forever and making sure that we have robust options and affordable options for seniors to stay at home in the communities in which they lived, in which they raised a family, in which they worked. It's so crucial to making sure that our, our, our state and our towns are welcoming for every generation. Oh, you know, shoot. as the youngest member up there, people would expect that I'm laser focused on drawing young graduates back to Connecticut. And it's true. I am really passionate about addressing the student loan crisis and making sure that our Yale and our UConn and our Norwalk Community College graduates stick around in Fairfield County. But I'm also really concerned about the fact that so many of my grandparents' friends uh, are, are disappearing to Florida, are disappearing to other states. We've got right. to make sure that Connecticut is, is really appealing and affordable for that generation as well. Uh, that's something that, um, that you said that I just um, thought about in terms of California as well. I wanted to ask Rubina this question. I do know that a lot of uh, people in Connecticut are moving out of state, older people especially. What about in California, Rubina? Uh, well, the coastal parts of California are more expensive, so some are moving to some of the desert communities. We have seen a lot of uh, senior housing uh, come up there, but uh, that is just only one solution, and I think that's where, Phyllis, you and I are joining hands in, uh, in making affordable choices available for seniors, or not only the ones that need to go into nursing homes, but those that are living with families where the families are out for the day and uh, we're providing opportunities for them to, to get together. Uh, and uh, and I admire your uh, uh, your work as well, uh, Phyllis. Uh, well, while we have you with us, one of, the, uh, uh, one of the questions that I have is, by the way, I really admire your youth and your energy and your determination. Oh, what are some you. of the entrepreneurial ventures that we can think of that we can be proactive and creative and, and, uh, and come up with new models, new container of business opportunities where, you know, elders, as they get older, maybe they're not no longer want to work or cut to work for 40, 50, 60 hour week. And we do have a flexible work week, but we really harness what 
you know, their their skill set and their experience. And, and that's really where my passion is to harness the the potential that's in the in the seniors population and in the empty nesters. You know, you are wanting to bring your friends back to Connecticut. And I'm trying to get my those of my friends that ha- are empty nesters use their skill set to to serve communities. So I think we're all trying to come from all of our our, our, our angles. So this intergenerational programming, how can our leadership, our elected leadership, help spearhead and and carry the torch for this intergenerational programming efforts? You know. As you were speaking, first of all, thank you so much for that question. As you were speaking, I couldn't help but think about my grandfather. My grandfather is, is a tremendous inspiration to me. He's one of my best friends. And I I can tell you that after his uh, successful career as a chemical engineer, he decided that he wanted to give back, and he became a substitute teacher in the, in the schools. I actually remember um, when I was in middle school, every once in a while I'd walk into French class or math class, and he was the teacher that day. And then he decided uh, as he got a little bit older and, and running around the halls of a middle school or high school became more challenging, he could give back in a more scaled-back way, but, but sharing his knowledge with the next generation by working as an adjunct professor teaching chemistry at our community colleges. And he's now uh, 85, and I, a few nights a week he drives all the way to our local community college and helps the next generation of nurses learn the periodic table, learn all the skills that they're going to need to be productive members of Connecticut's workforce. And I'm not sure I have an all-encompassing answer to your question, but I think that uh, there's real wisdom and inspiration to be found in my grandfather's example, where he has uh, devoted his job in retirement, which which may seem to some like an oxymoron, but actually I think that his view of retirement is just that he can still be employed, but that employment is now focused on giving back to the next generation and making sure that uh, Connecticut has a future that we can all be very much proud of. Right. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom in, in his example of going specifically into teaching and look into the community colleges. I, I, I chair the Higher Education Committee in Connecticut. I, I co-chair it, actually. And um, my co-chair and I, we've had the honor of visiting now almost every community college in Connecticut. And yes, there's pockets of inspiration of, of young people, young families who are getting an education, but there's also real wisdom in our community college professors who live in the communities in which they teach and often view this as a second or third career and an opportunity to give back. Rabina, uh, you, know, so, you and I, uh, several uh, months ago, had a show and we talked about how people can give back to their communities when they um, are older, if they've finished their, let's say, first careers. I don't even want to use the word retire. I'll say they, you know, they completed the cycle of their first careers, and what can they do? Uh, and it's just like what Will just said that his grandfather is doing. They could teach at a local school. They could volunteer at a, a children's center. They could tutor after school. I mean, there are so many things, and I hope that, that older people who are listening, who maybe are facing some of these challenges, will think creatively about how they can get reengaged in the community and share their wisdom because social engagement and engagement in the community helps with your cognitive abilities and your your you know your mm-hmm. your energy level your attitudes the more you're engaged and uh, the more you're going to thrive even in in your older years you know uh, uh, Phyllis and Will just recently maybe a couple months ago my son asked me to watch the movie The Intern with uh, I think it's Robert De Niro uh, where this uh, there's an an internship program where those who are retired are paired up in companies and he becomes uh-huh. an intern to this very young executive so i'm uh, you know i'm looking at something that we could do together will you and us as the uh, voices for elder care advocacy where we could create a vehicle where we help those, those that don't have the the proactiveness that your grandfather has, but are willing to give back, that maybe we could create some tools, opportunities, organizations, uh, internship programs, or something that pairs up, uh, you know, grandparents with young, and that's, in, by the way, in Olive Community Services, that's one of the projects that, that we will actively pursue over the next few months. 
And I think that's something that could be used nationwide, and I'm sure there are models like that existing. And uh, and I think that's just the next step to what, what you're saying. Um, I think well, that's a great idea. First, remove the should, age discrimination. Think about pursuing next, that. Huh? No, I think it's a great – I think we should think about pursuing that, and I'd be interested to hear um, – you know, the senator's view on that. I, I think it's such a, a wonderful idea. Um, we're actually right at this moment having a really robust debate in Connecticut about uh, the cost of community colleges. The cost has actually uh, skyrocketed over the last few decades. And we know that 40% of our community college graduates are leaving with debt. And when I, when I say those words, I bet a lot of your listeners are imagining young people, but the reality is if you go and visit our community colleges, they're intergenerational. They're places that people turn to for training before a second career or a third career. And um, we're seeking to offer free community college to some subset of students. Now, there are folks who are um, you know, more aggressive. I, I, I would put myself in that camp. I would like to offer it to any, can, any graduate of a Connecticut high school, regardless of their age, regardless of their family's income. There are others who say, well, shouldn't we limit it to those who are just recently out of college, uh, to those who have graduated, I'm sorry, out of high school, to those who have graduated from high school in the last four years. But I actually think that this would be incredibly short-sighted, not just because it's the right thing to do to offer uh, some of some of our older workers an opportunity to regain, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to retrain and learn different skills than, than they had in their first career, but also because it's crucial to our own economic development. 70% of the jobs in Connecticut's workforce are going to require a degree beyond a high school diploma by the year 2025. Now, even if every graduate from our colleges went, I'm sorry, from our high schools went on to, to graduate from college, we still wouldn't be able to meet the workforce needs of a 21st century mm. economy. We would still need mm. more graduates. So we have to think very seriously about how to make it possible, how to make it affordable for uh, middle-aged and older folks to return to school if they so choose and to learn new skills to help them succeed in the 21st century economy. That's why we've been pushing our, our program in Connecticut, Connecticut is called the PACT program, and uh, it'll be rolled out next fall. I'm really excited about it, but I hope that when it's finally rolled out in its, in its official form and its final version, that it will be a robust program that includes students of every generation. Students don't just need to be the, between the age of 18 to 24, and anyone who visits a community college knows that very often they're much older than that, and they bring a different set of skills. They bring a different set of needs. They're working to regain, uh, as I I, I love that movie, The Internship, and I think one of the takeaways is that the generations learn from each other, and uh, right. I think Robert De Niro's character was going to learn a new set of skills in the same way that his coworkers very much ended up learning from him and from the decades of experience yeah. that he brought. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the classroom itself is a, a learning experience for all generations, so even in that environment, the intergenerational program, the intergenerational uh, relationships in the classroom can help to foster so much education in and of themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want anyone to think that uh, what we're suggesting here in Connecticut is that folks who are in their 80s and 90s have to go back to community college. But as you talked about, <laughs> Phyllis, there are folks facing age discrimination who are in their 40s and 50s who um, who might really benefit from an opportunity to gain new skills, uh, whether they're technology-related or otherwise, and equip themselves to really thrive in that 21st century economy. Absolutely. Uh, in the last uh, minute or so that we have left, how would people um, let, let's say, your office in Connecticut or get in touch with you or find out more about the bill or if they've experienced any of this? How would they let their uh, experiences be known to your office or is there going to be any kind of uh, open discussion about this? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought it up. So. The bill that's being proposed right now in Connecticut, it almost passed last year, and the AARP fought for it, but we didn't have just we didn't have enough momentum on our side. Now, the only thing that's going to fix that, the only thing that can really change over the next few weeks is if constituents from across Connecticut and perhaps even across the country speak up and share their personal stories of facing age discrimination. I know that these can be difficult to share, but I am so grateful for those who have already come forward. And I hope that if you have a story to tell, if you want to 
play a role in shaping this public policy, that you'll send me an email, will, W-I-L-L dot Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L, at C-G-A dot C-T dot G-O-V. But perhaps it's easier. You can always call my office. We're ready to direct you to the uh, the public testimony form where you can uh, just send an email and it will be provided to every legislator. Or you can come to Hartford and testify yourself. We welcome the input of the public and we really need your perspective to help pass this new bill into law. So my office number is 860-240-0068. That's really uh, terrific. I just want to have a, I just one question in, the, in our last minute or so. Are there other states that are pursuing these, this same initiative for age discrimination? I know something was passed in the House a few weeks ago, I think, that, uh, that will go to the Senate, but are you aware of it around the country? Yes, I know that Connecticut is, is not exactly a leader in this issue. I guess the more positive way of saying it is we've got 49 other states to look to for examples of what to do, uh, what we can do well uh, and, and what, we're, what we're doing well and where we can improve. That's why last year we passed uh, nursing home staffing legislation to provide greater mm. disclosure. That was following the example of other states. Age discrimination statutes, uh, they, they vary between the different states. And, and we have seen, based on the experience of other states, that there's a loophole in Connecticut's laws. That's exactly what we're seeking to fill here. Well, this is really great. And um, thanks so much, Senator Haskell. And uh, when we return, Rubina and I will continue the conversation on age discrimination. And, uh, Will, I hope I can call on you again because I'm very interested in the nursing home staffing level conversation. So thanks so much Anytime. again. Thank and you so uh, much when we return to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy on the Voice America Empowerment Channel, we'll continue this conversation. Thanks so much, Will, for joining us today. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Phyllis Amen, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. Rabina Chaudhry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rubina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back to Phyllis and uh and our listeners, wasn't that a wonderful conversation with the with the youngest senator in Connecticut, Will Haskell? Uh, he definitely makes all of us proud. He definitely Absolutely. makes all of us proud. And his energy and his ideas and uh, are just uh, 
I know I'm going to be watching him and following him and watching him because I think he's he's going to do great for not only the citizens of Con- Connecticut, but who knows where he'll go from there. He's obviously very passionate and has wonderful ideas about, um, you know, equality and how we should all be included. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And the story and experiences of his uh, grandfather, that's amazing. And uh, there are those uh, exceptions, but I think we need to make that kind of opportunities available for uh, for as many elders as they want to partake of those opportunities. And I know you and I are working on on some of those uh, initiatives in at least a small, uh, small way. Uh, uh, before we get into our, uh, our discussion, I'd like to share a personal moment with the listeners. Uh, you know, since we've started our our program and our um, Voices for Elder Care Advocacy and uh, Olive Community Services, I've been talking about my parents uh, at age of 92 and uh, what a motiv- motivation they have been for me to to enter this sphere and to work in the area of senior support services. Um, And I'd like to share with everybody that I lost my father last Thursday. Go ahead. And our condolences and heartfelt thoughts go out to you, Rubina. I know it's been a journey. Uh, with you in California and him in Canada, along with your mother. So I, I know it's, it's, it's not only difficult when you're caring for somebody from afar, but when you lose somebody from afar, it's, it's difficult as well. Uh, it is, Phyllis, and I appreciate your thoughts and your, and your prayers. And, uh, but I do want to, to share that I, I feel so grateful uh, and blessed to have been able to be able to support my parents from a distance. I saw him in December, and I arranged a nice birthday party uh, for him. I, I think remember one you of the talking shows about him. it. We talked about it on we, this show. We talked about it on this show. And then on uh, Tuesday of last week, uh, two of my friends that live in the city where my father lived, they just happened to be visiting my dad at the same time, and one of them texted me that if I wanted to FaceTime, and I was driving at the moment, so I stopped and I got out and I FaceTimed with him. So I was really fortunate to be able to talk with him and see him two days before he passed. And uh, and I, I just wanted to share that uh, with the listeners that, uh, you know, my dedication to senior support services is strong and stronger. Uh, so let's, uh, let's shift the topic to, to seniors and the age discrimination and how we can support the efforts of our young elected uh, leaders and those of us you know, in the community to, to do the best for our seniors that we can. Uh, you just uh, said something that I think is um, very important for us all to remember. And it's not always easy to remember because, as we've said in past shows, we all have busy lives and um, we're running around from place to place. And um, so you, you received this call and you stopped and got out of the car to FaceTime. And I'm, I'm just thinking how how thankful you must be that you did that and grateful and 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 your father was as well so many times we we just let those times pass by and you can't get those times back and uh i know i sh- yes. i i discussed this with you rubina is there something we can do from a technology point of view to develop something for people that have loved ones at a distance or not even at a distance who want to more regularly share meals with them you know on a on a mm-hmm. device or uh, more regularly facetime with them that would help with loneliness and isolation and and loss 
And uh, I know that you and I are going to try and figure something out, even if we do a project locally um, out where you are with Olive Community Services, because these moments are precious and you can't get them back. They are so precious. Actually, yesterday, my cousin was visiting my mother, who's also 92, and uh, they reached out to me. So I was able to FaceTime and, and talk with her. And at a small level, what I'm doing is, you know, I'm I'm going in just one day uh, uh, because I've been arranging the funeral long distance, but uh, my, myself and my family will be going. And I am going to take an iPad for my mom. And uh, I was just blessed with a new iPad recently, so I'm going to take my old iPad and I've installed the the FaceTime app and uh, I think the Skype app or something like that. And I I hope to put the, the numbers of her brothers and her nephews and nieces and mine and my children where she just has to touch the number and, and dial us because I find that uh, she, you know, it's getting a little bit more challenging for her to, to dial all those uh, numbers, especially when they're mm-hmm. international numbers. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's at least a small thing. And definitely, Phyllis, let's keep this project upmost on our list of things to do. Yeah, I, uh, I think it, it, it adds so much on, on both sides. It um, does. It does. It does. It, it certainly gives me, you know, I mean, yes, it's hard. But it doesn't matter how much you prepare, how inevitable you think it is. When the time comes, it is hard, but the consolation is that I know that I did the best that I could. I have no regrets in that. And I also know that I got to see him just two days before. And it was interesting when my friend was showing him the telephone and she said, here, he said, where did you get that picture? He thought that she had my picture on her phone. (laughs) And she says, no, uncle, that's not her picture. That's her. She's right there. Look, you know, she's right. standing right there next to talk to her. You know, so it, it was, you know, that's the technology. Now we have it and we're blessed that we have that technology and we do need to use, use it more. And I'm glad that I was able to see it being used just in the last four or five days. Yeah, that's really terrific. So we'll we'll spend uh, we'll spend uh, more time trying to pursue that when I'm out in California, which will be in a couple of months. Um, Definitely, we know, will. Yes. J- just getting back to this conversation about age discrimination. You know, it's also an expensive proposition. Um, you know, the the lawsuits that result from age discrimination cost upwards to $250 million a year. Really? Uh, that's uh-huh. that's um, $91 million um, had been recovered in the, in the years since the law was first passed in 1967 um, on behalf of people who experienced age discrimination at work. And so, you know... In 2017 alone, more than 18,000 age discrimination complaints were filed. I mean, that's that's pretty incredible. That's a lot. Yeah, and just imagine how many complaints go unfiled. Correct, because people are afraid or they don't think they'll get anywhere. Um, they don't know how to proceed. They don't know who to contact. I'm sure it's not just a simple procedure. I'm sure there are there are lawyers or legal firms or advocates that mm-hmm. specialize in this. Uh, but mm-hmm. then again, if, it depends what the cost involved is associated with it. Uh, there are so many things to consider, and and I think sometimes people just get tired and they just say forget it, like in a lot of other circumstances. Right, right. And and Phyllis, I really do admire your your advocacy and your stand for for elders and uh, you've made it your life's mission. And I think you've met uh, your intergenerational co-person in in Will Haskell. I would encourage you to keep that relationship alive and uh, 
and uh, and support each other. I think I think you, you you two can really do a lot of good for not only Connecticut but uh, but uh, nationwide because you bring the depth of knowledge and the depth of experience in the in the landscape that he's trying to help. Yes, he has experiences from his grandparents, but you have firsthand experiences of working in that uh, uh, in that mm-hmm. environment. I, I strongly encourage you to keep in touch with him. Oh, and, a- absolutely. Um, you know, I met him ever so briefly. Um, I had actually scheduled a meeting with the local congressman, who I met inadvertently at a local social event. And I called him. I, you know, we exchanged information. I called and I went in to speak with him about this very same issue. Actually, during the same conversation, he told me his parents were older and he was starting to think about decisions that he would have to make for them. But anyway, when I went to that meeting, um, Senator Haskell was there. And um, he introduced me to him as Senator Haskell, and I really didn't make the connection um, until mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, you know, he was, um, he's very, he's, he's very young looking. He's 22 Come years old. He was and a I young just, kid. And, I, like, it's and like all, all the wires weren't crossing, you know, <laughs> wasn't until afterwards. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, that's an asshole. <laughs> it was really funny, and then I reached out to him and, and invited him to come on the show because um, of the information about his co-sponsoring this bill. I just I just think it's extraordinary. Uh-huh. And actually, when he was running for office, he was, uh, I believe it was, there were some national um, publications that were following him. I believe it was uh, the Washington Post. Um, I think it was also the New York Times and Time Magazine followed him when he was running for office because it was so extraordinary that this young man was pursuing election in this district that was held by somebody who was holding it more years than he was born. Yes, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, in researching and getting to know him a little bit, I came across an interview uh, that Annabelle Timsit of Geopolitics Reporter did with him shortly after his election. And I would encourage um, readers that if you want to know more about this young man, to to Google and uh, and look for the headline: "Meet the 22-year-old representing one of Connecticut's richest districts." It's a really an enlightening article. I felt like I got to know him uh, reading that article. Or that and what I think is extraordinary also is uh, something that he said was that a large percentage of his constituency are older people, but that mm-hmm. they really appreciated the fact that here was a young person who was now stepping up not only for the district in general, but who was concerned about their issues. And talk about intergenerational, that's, that's, it's right there. That's truly, truly intergenerational. I think he's at the cusp office, and I think Voices for Elder Care Advocacy is right along uh, with him for intergenerational programming and intergenerational um, issues and opportunities. So uh, I guess this is the end of the show today, and we thank our listeners, and we certainly thank Senator Will Haskell. And thanks, Rubina, and once again, condolences on the loss of your father. And we'll return next week on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Thank you for listening this week to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Please join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry, again next Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.